Welcome back to Postscript, a brief yet thorough overview of each event on the WSL's championship tour. Today, a recap of event three of the 2021 season, the Rip Curl Nairbean Classic presented by Corona. Firstly, a word of bravo and thank you to Rip Curl for stepping up and paying to sponsor tour events at a time when so many other brands have pulled back and are waiting out the pandemic. The business model where brands sponsor events was endangered, only really existing for a few tour stops, and herein Rip Curl saw an opportunity. The WSL had plenty of real estate for sale, presumably very few buyers, so Rip Curl wisely came in and bought the block all of the new Australian events, and a finals day add-on to bookend the season. Despite Quicksilver, Billabong, and Outer Known all having single events on tour this year, the spread that Rip Curl owns and the media coverage of this deal makes it feel as though Rip Curl owns professional surfing in 2021. Bolstered, of course, by having at least one team rider, and sometimes two, in every final of the season thus far. More on that in a moment. Also, congrats to Corona for stepping up and continuing to support the tour this year as well. A swift PR counterpunch to the unfortunate branding of the novel coronavirus. When we left Newcastle two weeks ago, Idolo was a mere 500 points ahead of Gabriel, and John John had been relegated to third. Carissa had a giant lead over Tyler Wright, and Isabella Nichols sat third. I suggested that given the marginal forecast for Nairbean, the top performers were predictable, meaning that it would probably be another Brazilian-dominated event with another Idolo and Gabriel final. I turned out to only be half right. And while it would be preferred by all for the drama of these events to be centered around the timeless and unassailable battle of man versus ocean, or of course, woman versus ocean, what these scarce and powerless conditions provide is a Hunger Games-style drama. Athletes fight for a barely sustaining resource, improvising, pleading to the judges, hoping their showmanship might veil or erase our impression of them flapping through fat and flat sections. And these displays of showmanship seemed to work for everyone. The athletes, the crowds, the judges... A highlight reel of claims from the past two decades might actually be shorter than a package of claims from these past two events. If the wave itself doesn't provide inherent drama, then it's proven to be justifiable to celebrate at the end of each well-executed ride just to let viewers know how proud you are. Heck, if we can't be awestruck by the threading of a heavy, shallow tube, then we might as well just have some fun. And we'll even give brownie points for creativity. And for that, Gabe, of course, proved to be the champ yet again. Officially, claims have zero value in the judging criteria, but one wonders what their influence really weighs. As viewers were keenly dissecting every moment and negotiation of every ride, and it seems impossible to divorce one's self from the athlete's own assessment of that very thing. And the very fundamentals of surfing embedded in one's own style is, of course, their personality and their emotion. 
And in its advertising, the WSL always uses these exact moments, these purported valueless claims of exaltation. They use these in their imagery, in their advertisements, in their highlight reels, in their commercials, showcasing just how incredible their very sport is. So when an athlete finishes a wave and celebrates their feet, how can this appeal to our emotions coax us into a celebration, but somehow not influence the judges? And if we in fact accept that it does, then really what the judges need to decipher is whether or not the claim is earnest. Did Adriano really think that his 6.6 was gnarly, or was he just trying to milk another fraction of a point to get past Griffin Colapinto? The truth is, even Adriano can't be trusted to answer that question about whether or not it was earnest with an objective self-awareness, nor can the judges, nor can the WSL. And that is precisely at the core of a much larger issue that was magnified and amplified at Narrabeen. Judgment of surfing is highly subjective. A touchdown celebration doesn't affect the scoreline because that score is settled by the time the ball crosses the line. Winning swimmers are deemed by the objectivity of a stopwatch. Even winning boxers can be judged winners by judges simply quantifying the number of punches landed. And so the WSL judges have a particularly fraught task, deciding what and who is more adept. When the surfers often have different stances, they have different approaches, and they never ever ride the same wave twice. The WSL has designed and continues to refine in objective criteria that helps to isolate certain variables, define common denominators of, quote, good surfing, and then apply that algorithm in real time during heats. But herein lies a glitch that's actually built into the code. An incident occurs, notably in this event, it was with world number one, Idolo Ferreira, with a lot of consequence on the line looking to defend his title and back up his win at Newcastle. In Heat 5, in the round of 16, the judges witnessed something that fit two opposing definitions. They, along with nearly everyone else viewing, could agree that Idolo landed a backside full rotation. And yet, they elected to use the WSL's objective criteria to define that maneuver as incomplete, because he, quote, didn't ride out of the wave. This goal to define an objective criteria has undermined the necessity to apply the criteria to something that is undefinable and subjective by its very nature. I'm certain that there are much more important philosophical and much more complex paradoxes that actually have been solved or at least agreed upon but until the WSL figures out a way to reconcile what the viewing public is witnessing with the scores that the judges are submitting, then the sanctity of the organization as a legitimate sporting body will continually be questioned. Or they could just run events in great surf. Subjectivity decreases in direct proportion as wave quality increases. Running events in good waves solves a lot of problems. Day one was a lay day due to the lack of surf. Day two ran the women's event in waist-high, rippable surf. Nothing to highlight or really note here. 
Day three saw the start of the men's event with predictable results and a narrow elimination round survival gave Jeremy Flores the opportunity to mimic some of my own sentiments that I've been harping on here in Postscript. More than ever, yesterday you looked pretty disinterested and today I, I don't think I've seen you look more stoked on a six point ride. Yeah, no, I, I knew I was gonna, everyone's gonna give me shit for that claim, but I mean, I'm trying to get fired up uh, anyway, any way I can. Uh, just in the context of the moment, uh, lately I haven't been able to just find the motivation to serve these kind of waves. I mean, it's the same for everyone, but I've been on tour for a long time, and the reason why I'm still on tour is to serve amazing wave, perfect wave with, with one other guy out, you know? That's the dream. But in saying that, sharing, uh, sharing a hit with Mick and Connor uh, is amazing. These two guys are gentlemen, you know? There's no, like, hassling or sniffing around like, like some other hits. I mean, he's, he's all retired and stuff, so it doesn't really count, but, I mean, even retired, even in 10 years, it's still be hard to beat. But, yeah, back to the claim. I'm sorry, guys. That was a shit wave, but just in the context of the heat, uh, I just need to get fired up a bit so, so I can get going for the next few rounds, hopefully, and try to find the fire again. <laughs> and I mentioned last show that I actually love Stace Galbraith's commentary with post-heat winners. Um, I've decided that I even prefer his post-heat interviews with the losers, something that has been conducted intermittently over the years, but it always elicits much more raw and emotional interviews, uh, void of all of the safe-talking tropes that we hear from winners. And of course, as Jeremy referenced, Mick Fanning got the sponsor wildcard entry into the event. He got third in his first heat, second in that elimination round heat with Jeremy, and then lost in the following round to Idolo Ferreira. I mentioned last show that while the Idolo and Gabriel battle is something for us all to sink our teeth into, there's also an intense race for those other three spots available in the final event. Again, in a new format this year, the world champ will be decided on a single day surf off at lowers. The top five surfers from the season will gain access to that event. And while John John seems to be a shoe in for the third spot, he's got some work to do. And uh, there's about five plus surfers who are all really well qualified for that fourth and fifth spot. And in this event, those contenders really started to elevate their performances. Frederico Marias often has one event a season where he surfs to his potential and he bolsters lesser performances to kind of anchor right in the middle of the rankings and secure requalification, only to do that same exact thing year in and year out. Uh, doing it in event three this year positions him in an equal eighth on the rankings alongside Felipe and Griffin, both of whom are strong contenders for that final day at lowers. Frederico beat Felipe in the round of 16, and it wasn't pretty, and Felipe had the highest single wave score and only needed a 4.6 to advance, but they both surfed five waves, and Frederico applied his same powerful, perfectly timed, albeit predictable, surfing to secure his sixes and a berth into the quarterfinals. He did it there again to an inform Ethan Ewing, only to be stopped by eventual heat winner Gabriel Medina. The other equal eighth ranked surfer is Griffin Colapinto, who is absolutely a top five talent, but has inconsistent performances competitively. In his rookie year on tour, I actually remember placing a bet, the stakes of which I don't exactly remember. It might've been a hundred bucks. I know that I definitely never collected it, but it was with Chris Cote regarding who would rank higher in their rookie year on tour. 
I picked Wade Carmichael and Chris Cote picked Griffin Colapinto. I felt that Griff was a much better and more complete surfer, but I also made that bet based on him running hot and cold. He came out that season super hot with that triple barrel on the Gold Coast, but failed to back it up. And we see this with Ethan Ewing. We see it with Yago Dora. There's something about possessing a stunning and attractive talent from a very young age that leaves that exact surfer vulnerable to less talented but more dogged competitors. And this is precisely often where in years two, three, and four, coaches step in. Someone like Glenn Hall has helped patch up those vulnerabilities for surfers like Matt Wilkinson, Tyler Wright, and in this event, Connor Coffin. I've also been speaking about these QS quality venues nullifying the strengths of the best surfers in the world and the inherent regression that is happening in our sport and in the WSL. Owen Wright, Julian Wilson, Mick Fanning, Jeremy Flores all lost in the round of 32. Idolo, Jordy, Jack Robinson, and John John Florence all lost in the round of 16. None of these heats saw the best surfers winning. All of the results were a reflection of tactical surfing, not quote, excellent surfing. This usually happens a couple of times in an event, and it actually adds to the dramatics if it's the final layer of savvy that's applied beyond the primary battle between the surfer and the ocean. But here at Narrabeen, we had tactics winning more often than talent. The central tension that developed while watching this event was from wondering whether or not the clearly more talented surfer would get starved by the ocean in their heat, not about whether we would witness, again, quote, excellent surfing. And I'm using that term in quotes, excellent, referring to the WSL's definition, an eight-point rider higher. In the 32 heats that ran during the first three rounds of the event, there were precisely two excellent rides, one by Jack Freestone and one by Yago Dora. And that is asking a tremendous amount from the audience to watch 32 heats, a total of 16 hours worth of surfing, only to net two excellently ridden waves. John John has been fine tuning his talents and his body for the most harrowing surf on the planet for two decades. Watching him surf waist-high beach breaks for world title points is akin to putting an F1 driver in a go-kart. And if John decides to devote any amount of time and energy towards training for the go-kart rather than shaving seconds off of his F1 track time, then that constitutes a huge fundamental misstep on the part of the WSL. And honestly, it's something that we've been witnessing for years now and it can only be defined as regression. That said, John John was beat soundly and definitively by none other than Morgan Siblick. In fact, he was actually beat by Frederico Marias in round one. He beat Miguel Pupo in round two and then faced Morgan in the round of 16. Morgan had already dispatched John in the round of 32 at Newcastle. And so when they met in heat four in the round of 16 at Narrabeen, I expected John to bring his absolute a game to avenge that upset. But strangely, he didn't, and Morgan seized the opportunity yet again. And this is where we're starting to see a separation between John John and Gabriel. Not only as it relates to Morgan, by the way, John is 0-2 against him in Oz, while Gabriel is 2-2 two two against him, but I'm talking about more symbolically. 
Morgan has presented the precise same threat to both surfers, and Gabe is the only one who has stepped up to neutralize the threat. John's opening wave of the heat was tepidly surfed. Three standard backside snaps, no real excitement, casual is actually the best way to describe it, and he earned a six accordingly. Morgan was on the very next wave, which from the looks was a lesser wave. It was certainly shorter, but he looked ambitious on it. He did two snaps compared to John's three, but they were critical, dynamic, and he earned a 7.17 and the lead, which he'd retained through the rest of the heat. John would sit with priority for a full 10 minutes of the heat, not catching a wave from the 20 minute mark to the 10 minute mark, needing a 6.18, That is, until at the 13-minute mark, a wave came. John paddled for it and then elected simply not to go. Morgan spun, scraped into it, and then blitzed it again with two backside snaps and earned the best score of the heat, an 8.53, under John's priority on a wave that John let him have. This was the single best backside turn of the event, and Morgan would go on to also score the best backside barrel of the event, an absolute gift in his quarterfinal heat against Gabriel Medina. In that heat, Gabe got busy quick, as he does, with a couple of mid-range scores. He left Morg with priority, waiting for a set. The wave of the day approached, and Morgan had to race into position for the left. He paddled horizontally and towards the shoulder, and as the wave began to break, before he even got to his feet, the wave began to barrel over him. He fell from the lip seamlessly into a pig dog stance and with forward momentum pacing the speed of the barreling wave, deep enough that we could barely see that he was still riding, but not exactly how he was negotiating it. The wave then breathed him out with enough time to complete a cutback and a snap on the end section. It was the first real barrel we had seen all event, so we weren't exactly sure how the judges would score it, but the takeoff was absolutely undeniable, and he surfed it flawlessly, and so he was awarded an 8.67. Gabe then needed a 6.18, which with 20 minutes left, he's almost guaranteed to get. So Morgan decided to just sit and wait for another set. With six minutes left and on his fourth attempt, Gabriel got the score on a mediocre wave by doing an alley-oop and a couple of turns. Stock standard for him, but in kind of an ongoing anomaly of our sports scoring, this is something that would have earned an eight-point ride for almost any other surfer on tour. But we know what Gabe's capable of, so he only got a 6.67. This left Morgan only needing a 3.87 with five minutes left, and Gabe looking to better his 5.87. Only needing that small score, Morgan finally used his priority on a mediocre wave, a wave similar to 10 others that he had already let pass by in the previous 20 minutes. He barely got the score that he needed, a four, and the lead with two minutes and 30 seconds remaining. He did precisely what he needed to do in that moment. Whether or not he mismanaged that middle part of the heat can only really be determined with the benefit of hindsight, but in that moment, he did what he's been doing to John John and what he's been doing to beat every competitor he has faced in Australia, everyone other than Gabriel Medina. The very next wave approached Gabriel. It wasn't a great wave, and Morgan's score hadn't quite dropped yet, so Gabe didn't know if he was still in the lead or if not, what score he might need, but it really didn't matter. This is where Gabe separates himself from every other competitor other than Idolo. 
he doesn't leave anything to chance, and he rarely even leaves the judges any rational argument against him. He comboed that marginal wave with a variety of turns, and he finished with a big air. And again, he got a 6.27 for something that we feel they would easily give Connor Coffin an 8 for. While the two surfers paddled back out, their scores were being called out. Morgan temporarily into the lead with his 4, and then Gabriel back into the lead with his 6.27. Morgan was now sitting with one minute left, holding priority yet again. This minute felt actually very similar to the second half of their semifinal in Newcastle. Morgan's highest score in that heat was also for a barrel, the only of its kind on that day too. But despite it, it felt that Morgan was always one step behind Gabriel. Even if he was on the first wave of the set, getting the score that he needed, Gabe was on the next one, and Morgan was forced to watch Gabe undo the work that he had just done. That weight seemed to settle on Morgan's shoulders while he sat with priority for the final minute at Narrabeen, only needing a 4.2. In a very uncharacteristic maneuver, and one that defies any heat management strategy that I've ever seen, Morgan, with priority, paddled away from Gabriel. With 15 seconds left, the precise wave Morgan needed approached precisely where he had just been sitting 20 seconds earlier. He raced to get back towards position, but was already too deep, so he just ducked over the wave. Gabriel, under Morgan's priority and with only six seconds on the clock, had free reign of the set wave. It had one closeout section on it, and Gabe did exactly what he did to Morgan in Newcastle. One giant spin on a giant section on a left for the highest score of the heat and an immediate submission to the WSL's highlight reel. Comparing this to his lofty Newcastle air that covered 20 yards of distance, this one was a much more flat spin into the flats. Uh, he nearly landed with both feet on the tail pad, which made the completion even more impressive. The judges gave him a 9.3 and the heat win on a wave that Morgan could have and should have prevented. The lapse in his judgment I really can only attribute to a potentially premature acceptance of defeat. I think that Gabriel had mentally defeated Morgan on that last exchange, and despite having priority and the wave being on the way, Morgan acquiesced to Gabriel in a way that John John hasn't yet forced him to do. The women's side of the draw saw an all-goofy-foot final and a shakeup on the rankings. Caroline Marks took down Tatiana Weston-Webb in the final heat, but there were five surfers who were all surfing well enough to win depending on who would control their pacing and peak against their most formidable opponent. Sally Fitzgibbon was on a tear through the early rounds. Sally has been in the top five for the past decade straight and finished second place three times. And when she surfs like she did early in this event, it seems that she can win events. But when comparing her surfing to Carissa, Tyler, or Caroline's, Sally doesn't have a single strength over any of them. I would add Stephanie Gilmore to that list too, except that Sally has progression over Stephanie. And that brief calculus would place Sally in fifth, which is exactly where she's been ranked for the past decade. This advice, by the way, could be applied to Kanoa and Kaloe and a few other surfers having trouble breaking into those top three spots. She needs a point of difference in her surfing. She is really well-rounded, she's consistent, but she needs a point of difference that she can rely on whenever she draws those top three women. 
Sally suffered a narrow quarterfinals loss to Tatiana Weston-Webb. Tatiana's strength from year to year has been getting tubed, and she used that to defeat world number one Carissa Moore in their semifinal bout. This was really Carissa's heat to lose, and she did. She lost by just picking bad waves. She stayed busy, she surfed eight waves, but Tati picked higher quality waves, including that barrel, the best of the women's event. Newcastle finalist Isabella Nichols completely failed to back up that performance, and she lost in round one and two for a last place finish. She went into this event ranked third in the world, and now she sits 10th. Courtney Conlog and Joanne DeFay were the other two big movers here. Joanne posted the highest heat total of the entire event in round two, a 16.66. She also beat two-time champ Tyler Wright, resulting in another ninth place finish for Tyler. But considering Tyler's win in event number one and everyone other than Carissa's inconsistent season, she still sits fourth on the rankings. Joanne would lose to eventual event winner Caroline Marks in the quarterfinals. Caroline's toughest heat was against Courtney Conlock. Courtney is a surfer who is overdue for a world title. Each year, someone else seems to be hitting their zenith when Courtney still has one or two holes in her game. Carissa, Steph, Tyler on her run two years in a row. And the point of difference for Courtney is her power. She thrives in West Oz, she thrives at Bells, and more events like those on tour will benefit her. But she grew up in Huntington, and that groveling combined with her power was what saw her through into the semifinals where she narrowly lost to Caroline Marks. Courtney held the lead through that entire heat, and with three minutes left, Caroline only needed a 6.34. Courtney held priority, and she let Caroline go on a marginal wave. She did a couple of decent turns, but with great flow, and the judges had a split decision, but the average favored her by a margin of three one-hundredths of a point. Watching that heat back, the scores really could have been flip-flopped. Both surfers surfed solid, but perhaps safer than they really should have, and either could have done more, but they left it in the judges' hands, squabbling over mid-sixes and hundredths of a point. In the final between Caroline and Tati, it was really just more the same. They traded average scores back and forth. Each time one of them attempted an excellent maneuver, they would fall. And so of the 19 waves surfed in the final, a pair of sixes would win it for Caroline. She moves to second on the rankings behind Carissa Moore. Tati moves to third and Tyler's in fourth with Stephanie in fifth. The beneficiary of Idolo's judging misfortune was Connor Coffin. Connor lost his first round heat. He also lost his second round heat to Alex Ribeiro, but beat Ace Buckin in that heat to narrowly survive elimination. Connor beat Wade Carmichael with a combined heat total of 9.6, and then Idolo with a combined heat total of 11.47, and then he beat Kanoa in an absolutely wacky quarterfinal. Connor's 11.06 was actually the lowest score of any of the other six quarterfinalists, meaning that he actually would have placed third if he was in any of those other quarterfinal heats. But very, very strangely, in this heat against Kanoa, Kanoa didn't complete a single wave. He caught one, but he kicked out after a half-attempted turn. This seemed to be the result of a blunder at the 10-minute mark. 
Neither surfer had paddled for a wave and neither had priority. Kanoa paddled into the first wave that approached. It was actually a very good wave and Connor paddled directly in front of Kanoa, blocking him. So Kanoa pulls back and immediately starts appealing to the judges for a paddling interference. The judges didn't impose that paddling interference, but they did give Kanoa priority. And then bizarrely, before we even had a chance to rewatch that incident, they called a restart to the heat, despite that very contestable wave that passed through that actually created that incident. So this new heat starts with 30 minutes on the clock and Kanoa with priority. Both surfers seemed rattled and distracted, constantly looking back to the beach, paddling back and forth with scorable waves sneaking through underneath. Connor finally breaks the tension and does three stock standard turns for yet another six-point ride, and ultimately, that is all it took. Ten minutes later, Kanoa took off on his only ride, but he looked completely disinterested and didn't even finish his backside snap, figuring that the wave probably didn't have a huge score, so he just paddled back out and seemingly pouted. He got a .8 for that wave, and that score would actually be his end heat total. 0.8. He held priority for almost the entire heat and just didn't want to use it to do the dirty work of surfing marginal waves for mid-range scores. Connor, for his part, did precisely what Micro had been reminding him that he is fully capable of doing, no matter who he is in a heat against. Just go belt a couple of backside turns on two waves. That's it. So he did it a couple more times and he easily took the win while Kanoa seemingly refused to play. Here's what Kanoa had to say about it. You know, in an extremely interesting situation, that heat, I, I guess, I think a lot of us from the outside understand where you're coming from in your decision, but I just wondered if you could explain uh, for the, you know, the greater audience uh, the, the strategy there and, and wanting to wait. Uh, I mean, I didn't want to wait. I wanted to surf, but there's no waves. <laughs> I guess at the start there, obviously, you had that interesting, uh, interesting moment with, with Connor. What did you make of that? Uh, yeah, I made one mistake in the heat, and it was a super crucial one. Uh, Connor did really well to to make the most out of it, and and yeah, I mean that wave could have been, you know, a one five, and he still would have beat me. So, you know, it's just one of those things where you make one mistake, and it costs you the whole heat. And yeah, and I shouldn't be making mistakes at this point. I'm in the quarters, I'm on the CT. You know, it's just like, what am I doing? You know, but yeah, you know, it's you live and learn, and and uh, on to the next one. Absolutely. We'll see you in WA. Thanks for your time. And by the way, Kanoa's right. To my original point, this undermines the entire event. There were no waves with excellent scoring potential in this heat, which Kanoa is groomed and programmed to look for. But there were scorable waves in the heat. Connor surfed four of them. And while Kanoa resigned to the headspace of John John, Jeremy, perhaps Julian and Jordy, and certainly Kelly Slater by not even showing up for these events, Gabriel has yet again identified a weakness in all of the other title contenders' game. Gabriel's singular strength through Australia thus far has been to surf every single heat in whatever conditions as if it's a final heat at pipeline with a title on the line. He met Connor Coffin in the final where both surfers elevated their performances and peaked against one another. Despite that, it was still a lopsided affair. It was Connor's best surfed heat of the event, but he still only garnered a 14.10 heat total for it. Within 10 minutes, Gabriel had Connor comboed. Connor stuck to his game plan, 
belting backside snaps, looking to push his sixes up into the seven range. But that plan was never going to beat Gabe at what he's been doing in every other heat, even if he didn't elevate his performance in this final. But again, Gabe leaves nothing to chance and left no ambiguity for the judges. His very first left showcased a new turn that we hadn't seen, and then he finished it with a lofty full rotation air for a 9.27. He backed that up minutes later with a cartwheel type rotation on his backside for a 9.5. 20 minutes later, in a last ditch effort to escape combo land, Connor again stuck to his plan and he did two backside turns. He did them harder and steeper and and on a bigger wave, so he got his highest score of the event, an 8.77, and freedom from combo land, but still eclipsed by Gabriel. Gabe took the win, 18.77 over Connor's 14.10. Gabe's win and Idolo and John John's ninth place finish gives Gabe a healthy 6,000 point lead over Idolo. Connor and Coffin both now share an equal fourth. The WSL, by the way, deserves congratulations for running two events in Australia without any COVID interference. They are, however, faced with a new challenge in Western Australia, where after 12 months of no COVID transmissions, a family of three all just tested positive in Perth. The area has entered a three-day lockdown, and while the Margaret River area still is open, this does disrupt the sense of relative safety and normalcy of these past two events. Hopefully, the event commences on May 2nd as scheduled. Considering the opportunities of North Point and the box, it would offer a very welcome opportunity for excellent surf, excellent scoring rides, and allow the best surfers in the world to do exactly what they are here to do. It would also take some pressure off the judges, giving them a chance to decide something other than the difference between a 6 and a 6.5. That is, of course, if everyone makes it to Margaret River with time for potential quarantines. As of today, April 25th, it appears some of the athletes are still in New South Wales, including Gabriel Medina himself, who, perhaps for his first year ever on tour, seems to be enjoying more than just heat winds, visiting the opera house, taking in sunsets with his wife, and documenting all of it in selfie mode on Instagram. He seems more in control, more self-aware, and more actualized than ever before, less tense, but he's also wearing a bigger target on his back than ever before. And after the frustrations of the beach breaks, Idolo and John John are among the most motivated to seek redemption in the Wild West. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor. Hope that you enjoyed Postscript, and I will see you at Margaret River next week.